Hello, everyone, and welcome to, oh man, a super exciting Independent Life podcast. We're continuing the thread of speaking with parents of children, young children, especially in this podcast, who have disabilities. And we're talking to Marisol Rose. She comes to us speaking about her personal experiences, having a, you know, a son and daughter with a disability and her journey through that and, and a process to getting you know, not just to a place of being able to cope with it, but to actually accept and love the journey that she's on now, raising two beautiful children who have disabilities. And in her journey, you know, she talks about accessing just a phenomenal resource uh, to help her out, which was known as Early Steps. She now works for this agency, which is housed in the Florida Department of Health. It's within Children's Medical Services, and she's a a parent consultant, a state parent consultant within Early Steps. And uh, as you'll hear from this conversation, wow, what a phenomenal program for young toddlers, really, I guess, from zero to three, babies to toddlers, uh, zero to three to get enrolled in. These are the most foundational, formative years of our life. You know, more of our brain develops and learns during the zero to three years than any other point in our life. This is when all the neurosynapses happen. And, and so it's a very important time in our human growth. And, and so this is a program that are for young ones that are identified as having a developmental disability or delay that they can get enrolled in. And she talks, in addition to her own personal journey into early steps, but what her role and position is, how it's a phenomenal resource for parents and families that are going through it. And, and what I really love hearing about it is that it, it takes the time to get to know the parents and the needs of the young babies that, that are in it. And then Taylor makes a program adapted for them and goes to where people live or into parks or into other natural environments to do the work and connects them to other parents of young babies and toddlers as well to act as resources for one another. And as you'll hear in this uh, conversation, that oftentimes early steps, the people that go through it will continue to be engaged with one another, continue to have relationships with each other. And they, they prepare families for that transition when they age out at three to go and continue on to the path and be successful. We talk a lot about important virtues that are needed as parents, the ability to lean into our vulnerability, to ask questions, to be adaptable. I ask her why she's so inspired. You'll hear from this conversation. She's uber inspired uh, to help and to serve other people who are you know going through what she went through or, and continues to go through. I always find that to be very informative for those of us that are into the area of service. So she just has so much to offer. I'm so grateful that Marisol took the time to talk with us about just such a key in- ingredient to, to living independently is, you know, figuring out how to best be a support, especially as a parent or a guardian of a young one with a disability. This is likely the most important work that we'll, we'll ever do and uh, something that I find to be just so inspiring. So please enjoy this wonderful, informative, and inspiring conversation with Marisol Rose. Welcome everyone back to the Independent Life Podcast. And we have with us today a very special guest, 
Marisol Rolls. So Marisol, talk to us about your journey into disability. I know everyone has their kind of uh, own experiences into the world of disability. And I was wondering if you could kind of open us up to get to know you a little bit better about telling us about your journey into the world of disability. Okay, um, that is such a good question. And I always struggle because it's such a long journey, really. It feels like I, I, it was a journey that I did not expect at all. Yeah. It's been a wonderful journey. There's been some ups and some downs and a lot of learning involved. But it started with my son, really. He'll be 10 now in March. So um, 10 years ago, um, when I had him, he was born premature and he had a lot of complications. And we were told right from the NICU that he would probably have some delays and sure enough, we had a number of things that went on with him after his birth and he needed some services and surgeries and things like that. So that's, that was my real first encounter with the world of disabilities. I mean, other than knowing people and meeting them you know, in passing, I didn't have an intimate relationship with anyone who really um, introduced me to that world. Uh, and I'm so grateful for it because it has given me a completely different perspective on life and understanding of what other people are experiencing and, and just a population that I never really had given that much thought to, to be honest with you. Yeah. It wasn't something that was ever really in the foreground of my mind. <laughs> Knowing what you know now and, you know, getting introduced into the world of disabilities, you know, later on in life and, and you know, until you had your son, what would have been helpful beforehand, before having your son in retrospect and of how the world of disability could have been introduced to you that might have better prepared you for it? It's a great question. Um, when I was younger, my mom did daycare and she did have some children in daycare who had different disabilities. One of them actually was a, a little girl who had Down syndrome. Um, so I had, uh, I had met a person with Down syndrome before, but that was really it. I had never really gotten to know anyone. And that was when I was a child myself. Um, so I think that what would have been great, what I think is lacking often is this idea that disabilities is different and mm. should be excluded often is excluded and sheltered and you know it's not something that is very visible i believe a lot in inclusion and i believe that disabilities is a natural part of life right and it is not something that is weird or different or you know it, it's an experience that's different than some people's reality but that doesn't mean that it's something that shouldn't be accepted or appreciated. And there's so much beauty in people who have different disabilities and, and things that we can learn. There's so much we can learn from them if we just take the time to open our perspective, our mind, and include them in the conversation, include them in our schools, include them in our public places. Um, I think a lot of times public places are not accessible um, families fear being out in public for various reasons, you know, um, whether it's uh, access not accessible because of a wheelchair or because of behavior concerns. There are many reasons why families sometimes feel that they need to isolate themselves. And that's really a shame. 
It's yeah. sad. It makes me sad. And I, I felt that way sometimes too with my son at the beginning. Yeah. So. That's kind of the heart of why I'm asking is this we're here at our center. Uh, one of the things that we do is a, a lot of what we call like disability awareness trainings. We go into organizations, all different types of organizations and raise awareness about disability, the culture, social etiquette. It's a part of the human condition. Like you were saying, you know, it's a natural part of life. So I'm always, you know, interested in learning how we can do more to spread this word. I'm, I'm not so, um, uh, you know, naive to think that, you know, providing a simple training to a group of healthcare professionals or, you know, some IT tech company or whoever we might be going out doing will, will do the job. And so that's why I'm always interested in learning from other people about what can be better ways that we can get people accustomed to this so that maybe downstream from that parents with children with disabilities who have apprehensions of going out in public, like you were alluding to, might have a better ability to do that because the culture is more embracing and, and all these other kind of things out there. So I think it is a good question for us to consider about how we can make this world uh, and society more accepting and normalizing of disabilities. And I have seen some of that, you know, I, I see um, like in the Target flyer and in various areas now we're seeing more uh, mm -hmm. children with disabilities being included and, and we're seeing the images of them. And that's wonderful because I think that's a step towards normalizing disabilities in society. But I think that a lot of this has to do with biases and the fear of the unknown, right? If you don't know someone with disabilities, you don't know how how it impacts their lives or how to communicate with them. Right. You then build up these ideas that may not necessarily be true. So. Oh, 100%. And yeah, fear, I think you're hitting on something there that, that can lead to assumptions and, and ignorance about something. And then perhaps not knowing can mute people from asking questions and, and don't want to say the wrong thing. And um, yeah. And, and, and as you mentioned fear, I can imagine that when you were a very young mother, you know, you just had your boy and now you're hearing from doctors about complications, things might be, you know, going on here. I would imagine there probably was some fear there of the unknown and uncertainty and everything else like that. I guess take us through a little bit of that about how you, you started getting your head and heart around this. Being a parent myself can really appreciate the, the sensitivities that must have been you know, really circulating at this time for you. There were so many emotions. Um, fear was definitely one of them. And when, when I was 30 and a half week, weeks pregnant, I went in for an ultrasound. I just had my baby shower two days before. And I went in for an ultrasound on Monday. And I was excited because my sister and my mother-in-law had been visiting from out of state for the baby shower. So I was excited for everyone to see the baby on the monitor. And I had my mom, my sister-in-law, my mother, my, my um, sister, and my husband all in this crammed in this little room. <laughs> and um, you know, we saw the baby, everything was great. And then we got called into the doctor's office to discuss a few things with him, which is typical. Sure. I didn't expect anything different. Gave him my birth plan, which I'm very, I was very meticulous about it. I was <laughs> a ton of research. It was literally three pages type. What uh -huh. if that, this happens? I would like to see this. Yeah. I would like to see that, uh -huh. whatever. And um, I handed it to him and he said, well, we're not going to need that. I said, why? I put a lot of work into this. And he said, I think you're going to have to have your baby now. Whoa. And 
I was shocked. So of course I, I literally was shocked. I walked across the street to the hospital in a complete daze. I, I remember it like a movie. I was disconnected from my body entirely. I just remember the images, but the feeling was, I was completely numb and scared. And um, they monitored me. So over the course of about 24 hours, I had eight ultrasounds. And then the very next morning at 6.30, we delivered. Wow. Um, and they told me it was touch and go, you know, so I was very scared, of course. It was my first time. I didn't understand what was going on. I had placenta eruption. Um, so I gave birth. He um, turns out, my husband says when he came out, he was blue and then turned pink. So, oh, um, wow. you know, we have a, a lot of memories of that day. Uh -huh. And, but a lot of them seem like a movie, you know, it was yeah. just so odd. And I didn't understand what people were saying. I, I was just in shock. Um, <clears throat> so those were some of the emotions right, right from the get-go and that feeling of not knowing the uncertainties, am I going to lose my baby? He was in the NICU for a month. After that, he was discharged and I was able to bring him home, but he still needed services. So he started with physical therapy right away. And then later he was diagnosed with cranial synostosis. He had cranial surgery. Um, so you know, as a new mother, I was experiencing something that I did not anticipate at all. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't my plan. I had a birth plan. Yeah. I, had, I had it typed up. It was supposed to be perfect. And, you know, and then my head, I kept thinking, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And it took me a while to come to grasp with the idea that this is right. This is life. And, you know, we can only plan so much. Um, but I, I learned a lot and I appreciate the time. I appreciate all of my experiences, even though they weren't easy, um, because it, it has helped me grow. When my son was four, um, I had started working for Early Steps, the early intervention program, and then I was pregnant again. I was nervous about this pregnancy mm -hmm. and what was going to happen and what to expect. And I said, you know, this is, this is in God's hands. I'm going to just accept whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And um, I was happy. I had a great pregnancy and I found out that she had Down syndrome. And so I had to adjust again. I had to reassess my own assumptions, my own expectations of my child, right? I think as parents, we often expect our children to be a certain way. We have these plans for them mm -hmm. without even knowing who they are. And it kind of um, limits us. It limits our idea of who this little human being will develop and right. be. So that was an adjustment both times for yeah. my son and for my daughter. Um, but yeah, fear is definitely one of them. And I think that sometimes it's compound because not only do you feel like this is something that's out of your control, you, you're, you feel helpless, you don't know what to do for your child, um, but you also feel lost and you feel like people are talking at you mm. instead of to you and with you. They're not always meeting you where you are emotionally, uh, physically, and sometimes the language that's used, you know, the jargon yeah. goes over your head. Sure. And um, 
that also adds to the frustration, adds to this, these feelings of inadequacy that families might already have and uncertainties, questions. You know, I always questioned at the beginning, am, am I capable of raising this child? What does this mean? What does this mean for his future? Am, am I the right mom for him? And wow. know, of course, of course you are. You know, but these are some of the doubts that I think families will often feel um, when they're put in a position where there's, you know, unexpected situations with their child. Yeah, you, um, I think, really explain a journey here that's unique to you. And at the same time, um, I'm hearing some, you know, some common traits that um, happen along the path towards disability. And, and you mentioned getting to a place of accepting a situation that was not your plan, uh, not was in the works, and, and et cetera. Um, and one of the things that we do talk on this podcast is to, to really uh, not just cope with a situation, uh, not just surrender to it, but accept it and even love it. Amor afate is, is something we've talked about on this, like, uh, the love of the fate that we have been given to us. And, and that is a process. For me, with my disability, there was a long process. I fought it. I didn't want it. I, it took a long time. I started coping with it. Then I got to a place of surrendering to it, then accepting it. And now I kind of love it in the sense that it's taught me so much about life. So how did you get to a place of accepting it? How did you get to this place of like, okay, this is not what it was in my plan, but it is the reality of, of my life now. I think that, I mean, looking at my child, you know, looking at my baby, I mean, I'm going to love this baby no matter what. I want this baby. This is, I think that I came to the point of acceptance because I realized that I have committed to being a parent. So of course I'm going to accept my child. And I still have doubts. I still have doubts of my own ability, right? To, to make sure that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm giving my child all the opportunities that they deserve, my children, all the opportunities that they deserve. But acceptance for me, it, it was just coming to terms with this idea that life is full of unexpected things, yeah. whether it's with your children or your you're anybody can have a disability. You could walk out the door tomorrow yep. and be hit by a car, get into an accident yep. and never be the same again, like never have the same physical um, abilities that you have today. Yeah. Uh, so, so really under coming to that understanding, I think was what allowed me to embrace it even more and not just embrace it, but want to, to help others understand that it's not something that should be feared. It's not something that's bad. It's not something that somehow is less. Yeah. Um, but it's just life. And there's always beauty in it. I think one of the things that also helped me come to that point was um, when I started working for Early Steps, the early intervention program, mm -hmm. which is where I'm at now, um, my son was three and he had just graduated and this position of family resource specialist came up and a family resource specialist is a parent always first and foremost, you have to have that lived experience um, of a parent who either you have a child who went through the early steps program or would have qualified for it. So I had that and 
I loved doing play groups with my son. So the provider who I had was the one who encouraged me to apply for this job. And I did. And it was fun. And initially, I thought it was just going to be all about play groups. But then I came to realize how much families need. And I, you know, how much I needed. It's not uncommon. All of these families need the same sorts of supports and, and other supports. So a lot of the beginning part of my journey and early steps was, was learning about resources and learning what other families' needs were. And one of the things that I learned was the preamble for IDA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And Early Steps, our early intervention program, is run under the regulations for IDEA. And the preamble says, disability is a natural consequence of the human experience and in no way diminishes the right of individuals to participate in and contribute to society. Awesome. Love that preamble. (laughs) (laughs) I have it on my wall. Yeah. I quote it often. Yeah. I remind parents. I remind my staff about it. I remind myself. I use it in my child's IP meetings because my goal as a parent, just like any other parent, is to see your child succeed, to see them be happy, to help them reach their full potential. Mm-hmm. And that's the case whether you have a child with a disability or a typically developing child. The only difference is that there's more barriers. Sometimes it's a little more complicated for families and for children to have the same opportunities when you have a disability versus children who are typically developing. And so I think that that preamble really inspired me and has keeps inspiring me to push forward to help families and understand that. I can see why that that's really empowering. I really like that it acknowledges that disability is part of the human condition Mm -hmm. and that if a person doesn't have a disability, like you said, they could easily get one. And most people will experience disability in their lives personally themselves. You know, if they ever live the average lifespan, but certainly knowing people that have a disability, it's just part of the human condition and, and one that we should embrace and love. I definitely want to get into your journey into early steps and and what exactly early steps is. It's very exciting work. Before we jump into it, something that you had said about your journey into disability and as a mother and and continue to maybe have is your doubts. I've been reflecting on my own doubts. I've been reading a little bit about the research around doubt. And there, there's kind of seems to be two sides of the coin. One where um, I think when people have a natural aversion and think like doubts are bad, you know, self-doubt can lead to, you know, kind of paralysis and, and, and lack of confidence. And, you know, those things could spell disaster. And then there's this other school of thought that also says, well, doubt is a good thing in a lot of ways because it can inspire us to learn. And so if we're in a place of like doubting our capacity and capabilities, you know, that could further drive us to say that we need to learn more or we're even pushing our boundaries and trying new things. And if we're trying something that we haven't done before, it's natural to kind of doubt our ability to do it. And it could drive this cycle of learning and discovery and, you know, just this place where 
we could actually grow from. And, and, and so I want to, you know, get your take on doubt and, and the role that it's played in your life to try and be a better mother or a professional with early steps and working with other people who may be going through this doubt. Um, so I think you're right. There's two ways that you can look at doubt, right? You can look at it in terms of it's a negative feeling, it's a negative emotion, and you can let it bring you down that path and start doubting yourself in other areas and then and having it paralyze you because it can be scary. Huh? But I don't look at doubt in that way. I mean, I, I get nervous about lots of things. I'm, I was nervous about meeting with you today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't bite. <laughs> um, I, I, I sometimes doubt my, my ability to do things as a parent. Uh, I sometimes doubt my ability to do things as an employee. But what happens to me anyways, is that I start asking myself questions. I'm very self-reflective. Good. I always have been. And I think that having children with special needs has just allowed me to reflect on my parenting and you know, what it means to me and how do I want my children to live in this world? What kind of world are we providing for them, mm. my children and your children? Yeah. Um, and so my doubts always turn into questions that I feel like I need to, I have a mission. They give me a mission. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't accept it as I don't have the ability. I, I look at it as I may not know, and it may not be a strength of mine. I never consider myself being an advocate. Uh-huh. I, I never have thought of myself as a leader. It may not be something that I imagined myself being, but that doesn't mean that I'm not capable. Right. It doesn't mean that I can't do it. I just maybe need the tools. I maybe need to ask the right questions or find the right support to help me get to where I need to be so that I feel confident, so that I don't have these doubts. Um, or, you know, when I experience these doubts, I just let them go because I know I am capable. I've done it. Uh-huh. I've, I've, I've been able to do this in the past, so I'm going to keep going forward and I know what to do now. I'm better prepared. And that's kind of how I looked at it with my daughter. I was not introduced to Down syndrome to that, the intimate level where I am now with my daughter. I doubted my knowledge of Down syndrome. I doubted my ability to parent her, but I knew from my experience with my son, I needed help. I needed to reach out to somebody. I needed to find out from other parents um, how they got through it. What does this all mean? What are their child, you know, what are their experiences with their child as a baby and now as, you know, older children? And what does that really look like? What might my experience be like? But having support of others, like I said, asking the right questions and realizing that I don't need to have all the answers, but I, I know where to find them. I know I can, I know I can get through it. I think that's what ha- kind of helps me deal with that doubt. Well, I think your anecdote there is having what I guess a lot of people call nowadays a growth mindset, that I may not know how to do something yet, but I have the capability to, to do that. I, I have it within me to learn and grow. And, and I think you just laid out there very articulately how, yeah, doubt can lead to this questions. Questions can lead to us answering those questions and getting more information and, and asking for resources. And 
And I love what you said about self-reflecting. There's a level of self-awareness, I think, that you're bringing here that's really important. Stepping outside yourself, examining, and those kind of things is a superpower. So I think that brings it into it. So take me then to how you got introduced to early steps and what was your involvement like in early steps? Well, with my son, he started early intervention through early steps at about a year. Initially, we were doing um, private services in clinic and uh, early steps. How did, how, how did you learn about it? Like, how did you get referred into it or hear about it? Oh, we got referred into it because we were in the NICU. And so that's actually common practice is okay. when you have a child who's in the NICU, um, the neonatal intensive care unit, that they would automatically refer your child to the early intervention program, at least in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's common practice. And then the pers- the early intervention program will reach out to you. They'll tell you about their program. And they did that for me. And I didn't quite understand really what they were saying, but I had so many different people calling me doctor's offices, specialists, and different programs reaching out just in that first week of being home with my child. Mm -hmm. You know, he was in there for a month. And then after he was discharged, my phone was just going off the hook with all these places calling. It was confusing. It was overwhelming. And I said, you know what? I don't think I need that. I'm just going to, I already have appointments scheduled through the hospital and we're just going to go private. And we did. And that worked out for a while for us. But right about just over a year or so, when he was just over a year or so old, private services started to get a little too expensive. Mm -hmm. He was diagnosed with dysphagia, which is an eating disorder. He had, um, he was aspirating and wasn't able to coordinate chewing properly. So he was choking on food often. Um, It was very scary. And they wanted him to go to feeding therapy twice a week. And it was about a 30 minute drive to the feeding therapy clinic. And he did not like it. He did not want to sit in this little room and eat for this therapist. It was difficult. And I thought to myself, this is expensive. This is a long drive. You know, I don't, he doesn't like it. So that's when I remembered, oh, early steps, this program that came out to the house, they offer services in my home. And so I reached out. And that's when I got started with early steps. So I was started when my child um, was receiving therapy. He was receiving feeding therapy. And then he started receiving physical therapy. In addition, he graduated at age three. Cognitively, he was very much on par with other children that were you know, typically developing for that age. And um, so he didn't qualify for services in the school system. Um, so I did. Uh, I put him in a private daycare. Mm -hmm. And that was when the position of family resource specialist came available. As I mentioned, that was really like a family support person. And and I thought I would be good for that. My provider thought I I would be good for that because I had already been participating in a lot of the local community events and play groups with Gordon, with my son. After that, I was there for about a year or so, and then um, I was pregnant with my daughter, who has Down syndrome. And once she, before she was even born, I started attending uh, support groups at the local Down syndrome organization, which is Minnesota Buds. And then not long after I started to attend those meetings, I became a board member. Wow. I'm still currently a board member of Minnesota Buds. It's been about six years almost. So that's kind of how I started with early steps. 
I've had a lot of opportunities for, for growth and you know, skill building. I started doing presentations and workshops and collaborating with all different agencies and things that I never in my life had thought I would be doing. Wow, that sounds awesome. It was awesome and, and I love it. And yeah. I love going to conferences and I've been meeting families all across the country not even just Florida now, I'm meeting families all over the place who are, are leaders in their communities and leaders in their state. Um, and so about almost a year ago, actually, I was asked to take on this position at the state office, uh, the Early Step State Office, and it is the state parent consultant. It is also a position where you're required to be a parent of a child who either went through the program or would have qualified. And, you know, I've, I, I know what happens on the local level. I know what families are experiencing and, and um, I have a vision for how I want families to be involved. And so they offered me this position and I've been there since and working hard at trying to make sure that families have a voice in our program. Well, congratulations. It sounds like for this position that you occupy, you want the exact journey that you went and are going through right now to be able to occupy this position. When you say your son graduated, you know, from the program, uh, if you could, you know, maybe explain some of the program components that are, were involved and that he went through or other parents that could be exploring going, uh, enrolling their young little babies into an early step program. What does it look like? What is involved and, and what happens when people are in it? So Early Steps serves children up to the age of three who have a disability, a delay, or an at-risk condition. Normally, the process is you would refer your child. So sometimes the pediatrician will refer the child for you. Sometimes the NICU will, mm -hmm. or a parent can call, or anybody can call and refer the child. And then we would contact the family and start explaining the, the process. And the first part is really going through the evaluations. That is a long appointment um, because we have a series of questions depending on the age of the child. It may be just questions for the family if we're talking about a newborn mm -hmm. or it may be look it may look like play, right? Like our providers are in your home and just playing with your child, but they're actually looking at your child's skills and they're looking for certain things that children should be doing at that age right. level. And then based on the results of their evaluations or their conversations with you, um, that would determine if the child is eligible for services. And then once your child is eligible, we start to do services and we prefer to do services in the natural environment. Um, services in the natural environment may be in the home or daycare center. It may be at the park, mm -hmm. you know, wherever you and your child normally explore the world. That's and great. Um, so it, it is. That's and great. Yeah. I think the benefit to that is that children feel comfortable, right? Yeah. This is their surroundings. This is their home. This is their life. And our services are, we use a coaching model. Uh -huh. So we're not there to do physical therapy with your child. We're there to actually give you strategies on ways that you can incorporate these therapeutic processes, right? Whether it's physical therapy or speech therapy, or we're going to give you strategies that you can then incorporate into your regular routine and make it part of your life. So this child is receiving therapy or these strategies throughout the course of their day or week. 
It's not a time that's carved out specifically for therapy. This is something that becomes a part of your routine. This is just how we feed Johnny. This is just how we do our diaper changes. This is just, you know, when we go to the doctor, we get into the car and have to buckle up. This, this is the process. These are the things that we do. And it just becomes a normal part of your life. That's awesome. So, so from what I hear and you're saying is, is people get referred into the program and through a few different ways or they can inquire about it themselves. And at the beginning, you know, doing a very comprehensive needs assessment and getting a lot of information and seeing where people are at, meeting them where they're at, and then yes. tailor making whatever intervention may be needed for the families and, and for the young ones. Mm-hmm. And, and I love this, that you meet them where they're at in the natural environment versus you know, come here to a clinic and learn it. You go to their home environment, the daycare, a community park, whatever it may be, and doing it where these skills will need to be applied to and, and making it so custom made for them. I think it's an excellent approach that you all take there. It really is. And in addition to that, Tony, we also take into consideration the parents' priorities. There may be specific needs that we need to work on with the mm-hmm. child, but you know, if the parent wants to prioritize one over the other, or they feel they really need support in this specific area, then we will will write the outcomes in order to address that. Wow. And so we take it, and families have other needs that maybe they need education, or maybe they need access to other resources. We can then get them in touch with the family resource specialists in their area. So they have another parent that they can connect with. They have another means of getting access to resources to meet their needs, their other needs. That's huge. That's a big one. So, so you mentioned at the beginning you were, you kind of thought the position would be, you know, play dates and all this other kind of stuff. Is there a type of, you know, intervention that you all do in that brings in other babies and parents together in these share these experiences and share the experiences with one another? Well, the play dates are a big, a big part of it and support groups and workshops. These are a great way to get families connected. It's that family to family connection that is really important them understanding that they're not alone. You know, it's them understanding the different systems or the different concerns that they may have, other families have too. Uh-huh. And then I think that feeling of not being alone huge, really helps you. It yeah. really helps those fears and doubts kind of diminish somewhat and, and gives you that, that hope that, you know, yeah, I can do this. Wow. Yeah. As you're saying that, it, it, it reminds me, when my wife first had, you know, our first one, um, the hospital itself invited like all mothers within a like certain week or two time frame to come back once a week, like on a Tuesday for like a lunch and learn. And, and, and so we had this cohort of new moms coming together once a week to a hospital to have some food, connect, socialize. And, and usually there'd be just something off to the side that they could learn about. And, and it was over an eight week time. And afterwards, these mothers would then get together, have their own play dates, you know, and now, like, I got to say, like, years afterwards, we still know some of the parents that went along with this cohort, and I just thought it was the most genius intervention. So I'm wondering, too, if an offshoot of this experience and bringing parents and young ones together also has these kind of other spinoff benefits where, you know, they can call one another during the week or later on, you know, after they age out of the program, that those social bonds aren't, you know, still there and they're connected and, and, and outlive the intervention itself. Absolutely. And I know some families who have done that. 
Um, I know some families who were in the program and then later started their their own support groups That's for families. Awesome. It, it really is. Have, You're planting seeds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They've gotten involved in, in other roles um, statewide even. So I'm very excited when I see that. And, and really that just goes to show that families do want to be involved. Yeah. Families, they, they want to be engaged and, and meet other families and help and support each other. And I got to say that that that's a part of um, so you're in, you're in this business of programs and interventions and everything, but sustainability. So can what we do outlive what our involvement with it? And so you're telling me here, it sounds like with early steps, this process of involvement that you have with the you know involving other parents and everybody together, then outlives after the graduation or they age out of the programs and the eligibility for services that it continues on. And, and that to me is a testament then to what Early Steps is all about. That's fantastic. That's the hope and that's the goal. And if you think of it this way, this is what I say often in my office and what I have said for many years now is zero to three, mm-hmm. the population we serve is such a short window of time. And our, our program is family centered for a reason. So at this point, this is the these are the foundational skills that we're teaching families, not only to understand their child's needs and their child's development, but also to understand how to continue to be engaged, how to advocate for their child long-term. We set the foundations for that now because we know that although we're there for zero to three, this family is going to have this child mm-hmm. for, for the rest of their lives. and things, systems change, the child's needs change. So us being able to provide them with the tools to know where to go, to know how to ask the questions, to want to be involved and know how to be a partner in this, in this program or in your child's team, that's going to help them for years to come well into the future. So, so as you're saying that, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in knowing is what, what are some of the you know, value that you end up bringing to parents as they go through the experience of the program from zero to three that you're able to give to them that you yourself might have been looking for and learned and gained. And then now in your role that you're imparting onto parents that are coming through this program. So so what value do you see at giving the parents? I think that when parents start early intervention, they're oftentimes they're in a crisis mode. They, this is new, this is scary, They're, they have doubts, they have questions, they you know, feel lost, they don't understand why it happened. They don't, they have, there's so many different questions and emotions that families are feeling. And then if you add other barriers, maybe, you know, socioeconomic barriers, yeah. language barriers, right. um, you know, those sorts of things, it can become very overwhelming for families. So I think one of the things that our program does is try to empower families empower them in understanding how they can work with their child and make it fit into their world so that it's not this inconvenient thing. It's not this like separate thing that's separate from what you do every day. Mm-hmm. It's not a time that you block off. It's actually part of your, your daily experience. And that allows families to feel confident in themselves and in their ability, and also to be able to see their child's potential Um, So, and then in addition to that, with helping families gather additional support from other outside resources will empower families Mm -hmm. to learn 
how to support their entire family, not their, just their child's needs, but it really is a holistic family approach because if there's one piece of that family that's strained or struggling, mm-hmm. then it, that's going to impact the child. That's going to impact everyone. So we want to make sure that families feel empowered and understand how they can support their child and their family. As you're saying that, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about, too, is uh, preparing them for when they leave your program uh, and what that world's going to look like. Is there like a warm handoff that you do to parents and their young ones as they leave your program and, and go on to the next phase of life? So that's the goal. Yeah. We have meetings that uh, we, when you are ready to turn three, usually about six to nine months before your child turns three, we start talking about transition. And that is a transition plan is this conversation of what is going to happen after early steps and what are your options. And of course, the family always has the right to decide whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. But we want to make sure that they understand what their options are, whether they decide to do private services or private daycare, or if the child qualifies, and they decide they want to go into the school system, Mm -hmm. start um, receiving services at their local school. So really, it's the family's option, which way they want to go, but we want to make sure that they understand. And then we assist them through that process of transition. If they're, if they do decide they want to go through the school system for services, then we help them schedule their transition meeting where they get to have a meeting with the part uh, B representative of the school system, the school district. And then the idea is to have sort of a warm transfer Uh to the system. And I think that's um, an area that a lot of, it's very scary for families because going from a family-centered program, early steps, into a more academic-based program. So you kind of have to change the way that you look at things and you have to be intentional about having relationships with your school, right? Mm -hmm. When we come into your home, it's a little bit more natural because, you know, the intention is there. That's what it is. It's Mm -hmm. a family-centered program. But when your child is in school receiving services there, Mm -hmm. it may seem a little disconnected. So families, I, I always encourage them and myself as well. I always have to remind myself that I need to have a relationship with the children who, the people who work with my child, I need to know what they're working on so that I can support them at home as well. Mm -hmm. And that can become a little tricky sometimes. Well, you're talking about a level of engagement there that you have. So how do you work with families then and parents? Like, especially as you said, if there's uh, time barriers, maybe parents are both working. It could be a single parent working. It could be people with language barriers, uh, geographic barriers, all these other barriers to engagement. So you know, what are the, some of the things that you've learned to be able to in, engage parents, especially parents that have those kind of challenges? I think it's hard because I think sometimes families don't know that they can be engaged mm. or what that even looks like. Sure. So I think educating parents on 
how to partner with your child's provider, your child's school, and whoever it is you're working with, I think is important. Uh -huh. But when you have these additional barriers, I think we miss out sometimes, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I think sometimes families, well, not sometimes, oftentimes, um, families miss out on that engagement because there are other stressors. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is not that support person really there to help them uh, and, and to make that connection work better. It has to be intentional. It has to be intentional from the parents' perspective and their position, and it has to be intentional from the school. And sometimes, you know, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen as well as I think it should. And that's unfortunate. I wish it did, but it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's yeah. You know, hard. and I, and I, I set up a question that I ask myself and, and our staff here at our center ask ourselves is like, how do we reach what I consider to be the high hanging fruit? You know, so we got some people that are coming to our center every day. They're super motivated to learn how to live more independently. They're super engaged. And I'm also interested in reaching the people that aren't coming to our center, who are not coming through our door for those barriers that I mentioned before. Maybe they're, they're out super busy. Um, there's language barriers. Uh, they may not even know about us uh, or, you know, all these other kind of things that are out there. So I think that's kind of one perspective that I was coming in on for the question about how to, how to reach them. Um, and, and so you mentioned earlier in your position as a state parent consultant, you know, at the Florida Department of Health and, you know, CMS there, Children Medical Services and Early Steps, that you had a vision, that you kind of like have you know, a way of seeing and doing things. So what is it you see? You want to engage schools, you want to reach the higher hanging fruit, so to speak. So what's your kind of vision, given the role that you're in right now, that you have towards really creating a system of engagement that is better than where we are today? So I think that um, systems, early steps, you know, our school system, our medical mm -hmm. system, they're, they're constructs. They're developed to help families, um, but they're systems. And in order to really know if it's doing what it should be doing, if it's actually working and, and really meeting the needs of the people it's supposed to be serving, then we need to know the people. We need to hear from the people that it's serving. Uh. So my vision and my hope is to really have family engagement at yeah. all levels of our program, locally and statewide. Uh -huh. And I would love for families to be involved in all different aspects of systems that impact their child, that we should be as parents. And I know that it's hard, and I know sometimes we don't have the time, but I believe that the more we see families involved and engaged, the better our systems will be able to, to help to impact all families as a whole. Yeah. Well, systems are definitely made up of people and being able to reach the people, get engaged with the people and know the people is huge. And I find communication is one of those vehicles to which we can really do that. And, and so as you've been talking and you, you mentioned that early on, people would be talking not to you, but at you using words that you didn't understand. And so one of the things that we do is what we try to, when we go out to healthcare professionals especially, um, so health literacy, the ability to communicate information in a language that people can understand and act on is a big deal in the, in the health professions. Um, and, and so what we try to do is really go in on that and say, look, 
you know, using the appropriate terminology that people can understand is very important. When you use jargon, you can kind of be talking over people's heads. Here's some of the language that people in the world of disabilities are used to. And we do this like kind of crosswalk of terminology and, and ways of communicating and, and et cetera. So what role do you feel like, you know, with parents and, and with providers do you all have, and maybe even with your vision, in terms of really helping to create a common language in a way that can really help people just get to know one another through communicating better? Um, I think one of the ways that we can communicate better is using less acronyms. Um, <laughs> There's so much alphabet soup out there. There really is. <laughs> so much. Yeah. It can be so confusing and it's intimidating to someone if you feel like maybe I should know what that means, but I really don't know what that means. So then you uh -huh. don't bother asking yeah. and you still feel lost. Right. You know, so I think um I think that would be one step, right? Is using English jargon. I think that if we want to incorporate families and we want to partner with them, we want to involve them in groups, even involve them in their child's IEP meetings or their IFSP meetings, mm -hmm. right? IFSP is for the early intervention program. Yeah. IEP are the plans that you use for the uh, school's program. Speaking so, about alphabet um, soup, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. The individual family support plan versus yeah. the education, the individual education plan. So, and there's so many more acronyms. Oh, so I think, I think um, just making sure families understand not just the acronyms, but the purpose, what it is that you're doing, what is the value of this assessment uh -huh. or what can you do with this information? What are some of the, um, I think families sometimes don't know the right questions to ask right? Um, yeah. and they fear that they're going to come across sounding stupid sure. if they ask yeah. certain questions right. and it's unfortunate, but that's how we feel. We get, we, you know, sometimes families just feel that way. I think that's human nature. Human nature. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think in just educating parents, like you said before, where they're at, yeah. right. Um, and providing them the tools that they need. And understanding what, how they can participate, you know, how their involvement is so important um, so that they're not a passive receiver yeah. of services, but that they're actively yeah. involved in tune with what's going on in the process and the, and the tools that are being used and the suggestions and recommendations that are being given. And maybe that's a really good place you know, to start too, is like what you were saying earlier, the purpose. So start with why. What would you tell parents the reason why they need to be engaged and why they need to ask the questions they may be intimidated to ask because of fear of looking not so smart? Why? Why, why get, yes. Why is this journey of a parent engagement it's so important for the parents to get involved with, like starting with the why. You said the purpose and all this. I think the why is just looking at your child. Mm -hmm. You know, you you want to, every parent wants to give their child all the opportunities possible to succeed, to reach their full potential. I say that often, whatever that may be. And I think in order to do that, you have to, understand what your child is going through the systems that are serving your child or your family and and if you're not happy with the way something is working it's not going to change if you don't speak up if you don't express your satisfaction your dissatisfaction or your needs if something's not meeting your child's needs 
um, you have to be able to just express that, and even though it's uncomfortable. And sometimes there's a lot of things in life that are uncomfortable. And I, I tell myself all this all the time. I have to learn how to be comfortable with the uncomfortable uh -huh. because unfortunately, a lot of these meetings that we go to and there's so many questions and things I don't, I'm not familiar with. I'm, you know, yeah. not educated on a lot of these things that they use in school or I have to be able to just say, you know what? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. How, how do we get people to that place? You know, especially someone that has, for me, when you say this, it, it resonates with, we're worried about what other people think of us because we don't want to look stupid. Right. So that's that right there tells me that there's a fear of rejection uh, from other people. We're social beings and, and we fear rejection and want to be accepted and don't want to be looked at as not being so smart. So that's probably part of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wonder if stigma could be part of this, too. Um, there's a stigma around disability and um, there could be a factor of that that could be layered into this as well. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to think of anecdotes or, or ways that we can empower people to lean into that discomfort, like you said, with the why. That's kind of asking about the why, because maybe the why can get us over that hump of the apprehension and fear that people might have. But also I'm trying to think of any kind of like core values that maybe we can aspire to as people, such as humility. You know, humbling, of, of course, we're not going to have all the right answers. Of course, we're not going to know all this information, of course, and be easy on ourselves and not so maybe prideful. Um, uh, I don't know, I'm, because I'm working on this for myself as, as I much would coach anybody else. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on, you know, very specific ways that we can, you know, help orient people. Like you said, you're very self-reflective and self-aware. Uh, any values we can instill in people to really lean into that discomfort? So I think the discomfort is, um, it's vulnerability and Ooh, that's scary, yeah. right? It's being vulnerable and sure. being okay with being vulnerable. You open yourself up to who knows what, right? Yeah. You're, that's what the fear is, is that yeah. you, you don't know what kind of response you're going to get and, and it can be hurtful. So vulnerability is a scary thing, but I think that it's a two-way street, right? I think families need to understand that it's okay to not know. It's okay to be vulnerable, uh -huh. but that's scary when you don't know if the person sitting across from you, you know, what their intentions are or how will they accept you yeah. if you're vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's a two-way street. The other parties also have to be able to understand that, you know, the parent is an expert. They may be an expert in their field, mm -hmm. but that parent knows their child. Yeah. and and if they're, they don't know how to approach a parent, maybe they don't understand uh, what the parent's experiencing, it's okay for them as well to be vulnerable. I, I think when we kind of let our guard down like that, we can open up the line of communication a little more effectively when we all understand that I don't know everything yeah. and you don't know everything. No way. Yeah. You know? So it's okay. We're going to figure this out anyways. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I, that resonates with me. So, so I have a vision disability, you know, when I go into say, you know, a clinical setting um, and I need to ask the receptionist for, for help to complete some of the forms that are there, you know, the receptionist is super busy. The phone's ringing. There's people behind me in line. I don't want to ask. I feel uncomfortable asking. Um, and, uh, and I ask, you know, with respect, but uh, also a bit of humility and, and vulnerability. I find that more often than not, people are so, so receptive to it, want to help, 
it's kind of disarming uh, to have somebody instead of complaining and blaming and why isn't this, you know, in the ADA format, you know, that it should be and now don't you know the blah, blah, blah. And it just, I think the way I go about asking is important, but also, you know, people want to help and they want to serve. And, and when we uh, enter into a space of vulnerability, I, I find more often than not, people are just more than willing to have and happy to help out more often than not. I agree. And I think that that's true from a systems perspective. You know, these providers, educators, they go into their field because they have a passion for helping help. families yeah. and children. Um, so I think just remembering that when you first meet with the family and putting your biases aside or yeah. whatever preconceived notions you have about a certain family or child or yep. diagnosis, um, just putting that aside and being present in the moment, recognizing that, you know, you have your expertise in a specific area, but that's, that's your area of expertise. This parent brings their mm. expertise to the table and everybody has a different expert. That's why we have a team. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we're all bringing together what we individually have as an expertise to come up with the best plan for this child's future. One of the things that as you're explaining all this vulnerability and, and, and communication and getting a team of people together and realizing we don't know, so we got you know, do all these other kind of things. What really jumps out is how enthusiastic you are about wanting to help parents and their children and, and just be, you seem very inspired. And, and so I'm always interested in learning from people who just have this real drive to help serve other people. What's your why? Like, what is it, you know, because I'd imagine for most people, and, and certainly it could be easily for yourself, that it's a full-time endeavor, you know, trying to be a, involved and engaged parent and navigating the system and being there, but then to take it to the next level and want to help other parents come along and be a hand up. That's really special. So, so what, what drives you? What inspires you and motivates you to, to occupy the position that you're in of being someone of service to others? Well, when I started, I started for my family, you know, I thought, well, this would be great. It'll help provide the education I need. So I need to know what to expect for my son in the future. But I've always been a helper type person. I love helping. I, I feel satisfaction in knowing that I've helped somebody reach another level or, or attain something or understand, learn something new. I think that has, that's what started my want to help other families. And then along the way, I've realized that, that there are still so many barriers, unfortunately, that people with disabilities encounter every day and families who have children with disabilities. And I don't like that. I don't want it to be that way. I, I would love to see our children and adults with disabilities to be included. And I think that's, for me, that starts at a very young age, and that's why I stay with early intervention, because those are some of the things I really would love to instill in families, this idea that that it is a natural consequence of the human experience. Yeah, it sure is. And, and zero to three, like for anybody with or without disabilities, is like one of the, from what I understand, the most impactful years of our lives where, our, you know, most of our neurosynapses in our brain are developing and you know, the, there's a lot of, you know, kind of things that are going on there developmentally, physiologically, psychologically, bonding, et cetera, that set the trajectory for the rest of our lives. That's correct. Yeah. It really does. Zero to three is when our children do the most learning. It's the most formative years. Yeah. 
Um, so what we do as parents does have an impact on them long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to make sure that we are intentional about how we're helping families, making sure that that their needs are being met. Um, if they have questions about their child services, if they have questions about other resources that they may need for their family, you know, we encounter those things all the time. Sure. So families are struggling with employment or um, putting food on the table. That's such a huge stress. Food insecurity is real. Yeah. Right. You can't focus on, you know, oh, well, I've got to do therapy now for 30 minutes. Um, When you're really concerned about how am I going to get to work? I don't have gas. Um, So that, or that sort of thing. Uh, And it is very real. And I think that if we want a family to really be engaged, involved, we have to also understand that there are other things that we might need to address in order for them to be fully engaged and involved and partnered. Yeah. You're, I think you're hitting on something there that, you know, addressing housing, employment, education for the parents themselves, uh, food insecurities, all these other kind of things are huge to the engagement piece of, uh, you know, getting people involved in those other kind of things. So that, that is fodder for even another episode. I'll tell you that, like, there's so much there to go in and, and, uh, so one of the questions we ask all our guests, you know, to wrap things up is, um, you know, we're, we're a center for independent living and, and we're all about independent, you know, independence and, and people living in the communities and making their own choices and et cetera. You know, what, I want to get your take as we do all, all the guests that we have on our, our podcast here is what does the independent life or living independently mean to you? So um, living independently means it to me it starts at a very young age it starts right from the get-go right from day one I'm always thinking about my child in their future what's it going to be like when my child is 20 or 30 or 40 Um, because I know that what I do today and tomorrow is going to impact them in the future so I I feel like um, independent living it's 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 something that I think about all the time. And I mention it at all the meetings I attend, you know, I, I understand the IEP meetings, you know, you come up with plans for a year for your child's academic progress, but I always tell them, I know this plan is for a year, but my thoughts are, how are we, how is this going to impact her when she's 20 years old? Mm-hmm. You know, and to me, that that's that's the most important thing is is the future. Is always thinking about yeah. the future for my children, and what if I'm not around? So that's I right. need to be able to know, to feel confident that I have done everything I possibly can to set them up for the best mm-hmm. future for themselves. I I'd love to see them as independent as possible. I want and expect for them to participate in society, um, work you know, play, whatever yeah. their involvement is. I want to see that. I want them to see, to see them being active and involved. Um, well, I, I, I want to say, as you're saying that, what, what really strikes me is, is the importance of planning. Uh, and at the same time, as you know, as you open your story out, life is what happens to you while we do the planning for it. And so you come into, you know, your doctor's office with a very specific and detailed birth plan, but life has a different plan. And, and all of a sudden, the best laid plans can sometimes get diverted. And, and while it is good to plan and get in these IEP meetings, 
What I love about you and the work that you're doing is, is that no matter what ends up happening, that people have the, the values and the education and the resources to adapt to, to whatever life has to throw at us. And hopefully be in a place like you um, can accept and, and persevere and, and be resilient. And, and then on top of that, be someone like you that's going to now go share this with other people. And, and empower them to learn and grow and do these other kind of things. So I want to acknowledge you, you know, for being somebody that's got a really amazing journey that you're on and that you continue to be on. I, I love your vision. I, I'm so happy to hear about this program and learn more about this program. And, and I hope that there's many listeners to this that are now going to be more aware of your program and spread the word about it. It just is phenomenal. It, it's just an incredible resource and, and just amazing work that you all are doing over there at the uh, Department of Health and Early Steps and CMS. It's just wonderful that you're on this journey and you occupy the position that you're in. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I do believe that our program is amazing. It impacts families in such profound ways. Um, so yes, I hope that we get the word out about our program and more importantly about families not being afraid to be involved, to ask questions, to partner. And what does that look like? Just, you know, yeah. it's such an important piece of the puzzle. Leaning into our fear and our vulnerability or with a little humility can really, you know, be what we need to all grow. And, uh, you know, to have the support and the, the wisdom that you just shared uh, to us about exactly how to do that is golden. And we're going to link up your contact information, you know, resources as well to, to early steps so that anyone listening here can get more involved and engaged as we were talking about here in this. So Marisol Rose, thank you so much for, for everything that you do and, and for your courage to come out here and, and, and speak very openly and candidly about your own personal life uh, and the wonderful things that you do as a professional. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my experience and my story and, and, and share information about my program, which I believe in so strongly. Yeah. Well, it, it's an honor. And until the next time, we're going to take this onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.